So let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Tonight I'm going to talk about impermanence, anicca. Since the establishment of this meditation center and the completion of this meditation hall, this place has seen a great number of meditators who have come to practice meditation and more specifically who have come here to practice Vipassana meditation. Usually we translate Vipassana meditation as insight meditation or as mindfulness meditation. So when we speak of insight meditation then what kind of insights will we get by practicing this meditation? We have seen that the word vipassana consists of two words, vi and pasana. Pasana means seeing, clearly seeing, clearly realizing, understanding. And vi is uh, explained as various or manifold. And the commentaries uh, say that this refers to the three general characteristics and as we know these general characteristics of mental and physical phenomena are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and non-self or the impersonal nature. So phenomena, conditioned phenomena are said to be impermanent which means phenomena are fleeting, they are changing, they do not stay the same. So that means once things have, have arisen, they last a little bit and then they disappear. So this impermanent nature refers to after having arisen, things vanish and disappear. And because all conditioned phenomena are constantly arising and disappearing, so they cannot be the base for lasting or eternal happiness and satisfaction. So this impersonal nature of things makes them uh, basically unsatisfactory. 
it's like this impermanent nature is like fa uh, sand running through our fingers we can hold on uh, to nothing and because there is nothing to really to hold on to so things are not satisfactory they never can give us lasting or uh, unchanging happiness or pleasure and the fact that conditioned phenomena are fleeting, changing, impermanent and as a result of that as a they are of an unsatisfactory nature this implies that we do not have an absolute control over these phenomena because if we had everything under control including this conditioned phenomena then we would, would make them permanent then we definitely would make them the cause for our happiness however we have to admit that on an absolute level we do not have this control and things do not happen according to our wishes or expectations but they happen according to their own inherent natural laws when we start looking at this phenomena in body and mind we come to see that there is no really substantial thing no inherently existing entity that is there all the time unchanging not subject to arising and disappearance and so having no control not being able to exercise mastery over uh, things means anatta or the impersonal nature of phenomena so tonight I want to go into the first of these three characteristics namely uh, to impermanence the changing and fleeting nature of conditioned phenomena in Pali this is called anicca nature is constantly displaying this characteristic of change or impermanence we can notice this in various ways for example in the changing of the seasons fall changes into winter winter changes into spring spring changes into summer and so on or we also can notice it in the change from night and day we can uh, notice it for example in the tides the ocean rising and falling or we just need uh, to look outside at the weather sometimes it's sunny sometimes it's cloudy sometimes it's raining at other times it can be snowing again here it's changing constantly so all of these different changes and many more we can see them with our own eyes or 
we also can experience them in our body, such as the change of temperature outside. Changes also happen over much longer spans of time. <coughs> and these kinds of changes are barely noticeable. <coughs> Something seemingly very solid and firm, like rocks and stones, do actually change in the course of time. <coughs> we can see these changes uh, in mountain rivers and creeks. Like over thousands or millions of years, the water of a mountain river has washed out the rocks and created deep ravines and valleys. Or, like in Europe, in Switzerland, we have the Alps, the high mountains, which also stretch into France and Italy, Germany and Austria. And it is said that what is now middle of Europe, long, long time ago, this was actually the bed of the ocean, of the sea. And then at one stage the bottom of the ocean was pushed upwards, folded, and with that the mountains, the Alps, were created. So they do not exist since time immemorial. I'm not exactly sure how the Blue Mountains <laughs> came into existence but probably also they have not been here since time immemorial. And even our planet, the Earth, is said not to have been existing ever since. On the one hand we have the Big Bang theory according to which the whole universe was born at once with the Big Bang. According to Buddhist philosophy, it is said that there is actually no beginning of this earth or universe. In the Buddhist scriptures we can read about uncountable world periods or universes that exist in boundless space. So change, impermanence, or instability, instability is an undeniable fact. We do not have to go so far, we only have to look at our life. For example, the person who we are today is no longer the child that it was before. I think we all can agree our appearance has probably changed we look at the world in a different way than we did 20, 30 or 40 years ago. Our priorities have changed, our views and opinions are also no longer the same. And even within one day we can notice changes in our lives, in our body. So for example, in the morning when we get up the body may feel heavy and without energy but then 
later on in the day the heaviness in the body has completely gone and the body may feel very light and full of energy or a happy feeling that arose uh, because there were the, the necessary causes for it to arise may also have disappeared again in the meantime and later on maybe a feeling of sadness or great distress may have arisen so when we practice meditation vipassana meditation these constant changes become even more obvious and noticeable we see that these processes in the body and in the mind are constantly changing and that they never stay the same for example it becomes obvious in regard to the body in the beginning of a sitting meditation our body may still feel at ease and comfortable but then after some time of sitting there this ease and comfort in the body may give way to some unpleasant sensations maybe the tensions in the, in the shoulder arise or a nasty pain in the back comes up or we get an itchy sensation on the face and so then we notice these unpleasant or painful sensations sometimes they may disappear within a short time sometimes they may stay there and may even increase uh, during this sitting meditation when you observe the mind the processes happening in the mind the thoughts, mental images emotions and so on we can see that these changes happen even at the greater speed a thought may appear all of a sudden like out of the blue or images may run uh, through our minds one after the other like lightning and when observing a thought then it also may happen that this thought disappears all of a sudden from one moment to the next so when we carefully and attentively observe all these mental and physical phenomena then the characteristic of impermanence or change will become more obvious and distinct then we realize that each process in the body and mind vanishes or dissolves after it has arisen each pain, each thought, each emotion, each mental image or each feeling uh, disappears after a certain time because whatever has arisen is subject 
to dissolution. It cannot be otherwise. And once an object has disappeared, then it's gone forever. It will never ever come up again. A friend of mine had been practicing with Saito Upandita and at one time when she was in Burma meditating with him she experienced a lot of physical pain and after maybe two or three months when she left uh, she asked Sayadaw whether this pain would be ex that she, whether she would experience this pain again when she would come back the following year and Saido Upandita very directly said no, no and so that was a great relief for her but then next year when she went again to Burma to practice with Sayado, the same kind of pain arose again and so she wasn't very happy about that and in one interview she told Sayado that the previous year he had told her that this pain would not appear again but now she had to go through these painful experiences again but then Sayado Upandita said no no it's not the same pain from last year that one is gone what you experience now is a completely new pain <laughs> So with the continuous and constant practice then we will be able to see these changes in more detail. So for example when we observe a painful sensation we can see that within this thing called pain um, smaller changes take place or if the pain has been spread over uh, quite a wide area then that pain may become smaller and gather in one point or what very often can be observed is that the intensity of the pain is changing usually from being less intense to more intense but if you are patient enough while observing the pain then after seeing the pain increasing, increasing, increasing and becoming almost unbearable if you persevere through that then we can come to that point where we can see the pain actually decreasing or getting less in intensity and if we, lo if we watch long enough are patient enough then we can see even that this pain completely disappears sometimes it happens that when meditators op uh, observe a very strong and severe pain that all of a sudden it's like a big bang <laughs> an explosion and with that the pain has simply disappeared completely gone as much as they look for it they can not find even a little trace of that pain 
And so, with deep enough concentration and sharp enough mindfulness, we can come to see that this thing called pain is not just one solid chunk of pain, but that it actually consists of many smaller parts of pain, or particles of pain. And with that sharp and penetrating mindfulness, then meditators can see that these particles of pain or uh, painful sensations come and go, that they arise and disappear one after the other. So then it's like one moment of pain arises and disappears and is immediately followed by another moment of pain, which again vanishes very quickly and is replaced by yet another little painful uh, moment of pain. And so in this way we get a more accurate and clearer picture of what is commonly called pain, which is merely a concept, a label for a certain cluster of experiences. So with the practice of Vipassana meditation, we can sharpen the eye of wisdom in such a way that we can see and observe these processes in body and mind as if looking through a magnifying glass. And with the deepening of our practice, it's not only looking through with a magnifying glass, but um, it's like looking through a microscope. And when concentration is very good and mindfulness very uh, accurate and sharp, then it's almost like looking at these processes in body and mind through an electronic microscope. So, um, incredible and amazing things can actually be discovered by simply uh, watching what is happening in this body and mind. And so, with this clear seeing, which is pasana, vipassana, uh, we get closer to right understanding, we get closer to reality as it really is. And it's only through this understanding that we can overcome our ignorance. What the Buddha discovered more than 2,500 years ago was the fact that nothing lasts longer than a split second. And this has been found true and confirmed by the modern scientists, at least on the material level. Like some hundred, a bit more than hundred years ago, uh, scientists thought that by finding the atom they had found the smallest uh, materia material unit and actually the word atom is a Greek word and it means indivisible something that can not be divided any further 
But then, later on, scientists have found out that the atom is not the smallest material unit, but that it consists of proton, neutron, and electron. And so then they thought now they had found the smallest material unit. But then later on, with more sophisticated instruments, they found that even the neutrons or protons or electrons consisted of smaller material units, and they called them the quarks. And so that was quite a breakthrough, and they thought now they had found the smallest material unit. But again, then with even more sophisticated instruments, they have discovered that even these quarks uh, do not last or are not permanent material units, but that they too uh, are subject to arise and disappear, or that these quarks uh, constantly change between being energy and then materializing into uh, matter. So the Buddha realized this impermanent changing nature of phenomena uh, with his eye of wisdom. And he said that these phenomena actually arise and disappear many, many millions of times within one moment. And one moment is defined as the time it takes to blink one's eyes or to snap one's finger. And this is said to be one-tenth of a second. And what the Buddha also discovered was the fact that the mental processes arise and disappear at an even faster speed than the material uh, processes. It said that um, mental uh, processes happen 17 times faster than material processes. So, to take an example to illustrate these findings, uh, let's take a fan as a simple uh, example. So, a fan that is turning very fast on full speed looks like a disc, a solid disc. And if somebody has never seen a fan uh, which is not turning, then looking at the fan turning in great speed, uh, the person just thinks there is this disc that is up on the ceiling or standing uh, somewhere turning. But then when the fan is slowed down as it turns a bit slower, then the different blades can be made out. So there are maybe three or four blades that are turning. Like here we have four blades on this fan on the ceiling. And if the fan is turned very low on the slowest speed, then one clearly can make out 
the space in between these blades and if one stops it completely then it's very obvious that there are just these blades and a lot of space in between <coughs> but it's because of the speed when the fan is turning very fast that it looks like a solid disk the spaces in between can no longer be seen and so like the blades of a fan that look like a disk when it's turning very fast each piece of matter consists of a mass of very small parts that are changing so fast that it appears as a solid thing or another traditional example is the example of a row of ants so seen from afar a row of ants that walks across the path it looks like a line, a rope or maybe a branch but when one goes closer then one comes to see that somehow it's moving and if one goes close enough one can see all the individual ends and the Buddha said that all the processes in our body and mind happen in a likewise manner also thoughts are only a series of momentary arising and disappearing thought moments that have no uh, real substance when it is said that we need to understand this characteristic of impermanence or change it means we have to understand this fleeting nature of phenomena on, on this very minute level in the Visuddhimagga, impermanence, anicca, is described in this following way. Impermanence means the arising, disappearance and becoming different of things, or the disappearance of things which had arisen. The meaning is that these things never stay the same, but vanish by dissolving from moment moment so this insight into the impermanent uh, nature of phenomena to their constant arising and disappearing is a crucial insight and it's also needed then to make further progress uh, on the path and you may know that there is one stage of insight knowledge called the insight knowledge of arising and disappearance so this refers to the fourth stage of insight knowledge and from there it goes on this constant uh, change and dissolution of phenomena on this microscopic level 
is difficult to see for an untrained mind and because it's difficult to see then as a result people wrongly assume that things are permanent and solid including themselves, their body, their mind and so consequently people live in a deceptive illusion that is the creation of the ignorant mind here is another example to illustrate this point we very much trust that our five senses the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue and the body so we very much trust that with these five senses we perceive the world around us <coughs> and that what we perceive is correct and accurate so imagine for a, for a moment something very solid and hard for example like this uh, seat here this wood seems to be very solid quite hard and firm so touching it and also looking at it it really gives us the impression to be very solid and we think it's um, uh, really solid and strong and actually I can sit on here and so far it hasn't crashed <laughs> but at the same time from our intellectual, intellectual understanding of physics we know that this seed made of wood uh, is composed of atoms and the knowledge about the structure of the atoms tells us that each atom consists of a nucleus, a proton, a neutron and electron that uh, turn around the nucleus with an incredible speed and so to get a sense of the spatial relationship between the nucleus of the atom and the electrons imagine a football in the middle of a football stadium and now take an object of the size of a golf ball which is turning around this football at a radius of the size of, the, of a huge football stadium and this object is turning with a speed of several thousand kilometers per hour and so with this we get an appropriate idea of the difference in size between the nucleus of the atom and the electron as well as the immense space between them physicists have told us that atoms basically consist, consist of space like 99.99% .99 space and 
as all material things are completely made up of atoms, it follows that they also must consist 99.99% of space. So therefore, this seat that I'm sitting on is actually mostly space. And in the same way, our body, the physical body, is 99.99% space. So this seat, or our body, seems so solid in the same way as a fast-turning fan gives the impression to be a solid disk. It's because of this incredible speed of the electrons that gives the impression of solidity or substance. And now in this example we go a step further and now imagine that the electrons would stop turning around the nucleus. So then the seat on which I'm sitting, uh, if the electro electrons would stop turning, then the seat would immediately disappear. I would just be down on the floor. <laughs> So let's go back to another level, not that microscopic one. Like the impermanent nature of phenomena manifests also in another way and it manifests in our life because also our life is impermanent or in other words we are mortal. We have to die one day. Although this is a fact, people do not really, really understand it. If people had a deep and clear understanding of their own mortality, as well as the mortality of their beloved ones or all beings in general, then the death of a beloved one would not lead to so much grief, sorrow, or lamentation. It's strange. The news of people dying far away, or the news of people we don't know or we don't know so well, doesn't affect us in the same way. And if a natural disaster happens, like an earthquake, or a cyclone hitting somewhere and if we said uh, 50,000 or 80,000 people die then we are not in the same way affected and afflicted with grief and sorrow as if we are when only one person, a dear person, uh, dies. In our life Nothing is as sure as our own death. And it's also sure 
that the people around us will die. So this change will happen if we want it or not. Death is certain, life is uncertain, because all that is born is of the nature to die. There is no substance in the whole universe which is not subject to die. There is no substance which is indestructible. With birth we automatically get the ticket to die. Unfortunately, maybe it's fortunate, we don't have the choice at the time of birth to choose whether we want to be uh, eternal or if we want to be mortal. In the same way as the sun uh, rises in the east and then steadily moves towards the west to set people and beings who have been born once they have born they steadily move towards death that's just inevitable like with the sun we know and we wouldn't expect it to be different like when the sun rises in the east in the morning um, I think nobody of us goes and thinks ah, oh, it shouldn't move towards the west it should go back and think back into the eastern horizon or maybe thinking now the sun uh, should stop moving and just stay up there in the sky but with death it's a bit different people are reluctant to accept the death of dear ones they can get quite frightened uh, at the prospect of their own death but nobody can escape it one day it's going to happen and as with the sun who steadily moves towards the west which is getting closer to the West with each hour, with each minute living beings are actually also moving closer to death day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute <coughs> a number of years ago when I went to the Schwedagon Pagoda in Yangon there are many shops uh, lining the stairs uh, going up to the pagoda and in one of the shops they sell these little pictures with uh, famous pagodas in Burma or pictures with famous uh, Sayadaws and so I went to one of these shops and bought a stack of little pictures with uh, famous pagodas and after I had chosen all these little pictures then the lady in the shop as a present she gave me another little um, card and on one side there were two faces like quite um, 
just drawings. So one face was a smiling face with the mouth going up like this. And the other face was an angry face with the mouth going like this. And so then below these faces it was written in Burmese that one should live like this, the smiling face, one should not live like that, the angry face. And then on the next line it said that living like this, smiling face, uh, would lead to happiness and peace, whereas living like, as, like that, with the angry face, uh, would lead to misery and suffering. And so then on the back of this little card it said that it is certain that one was going to die and also that one could die at any time and so because of that one should live a meaningful life and not waste one's time. And then below that there was a list showing how many days one would have left before death comes and this was based on an average lifespan of 75 years. So just to give you some idea, so if one is 20 years old then the days already lived number 7300 days and so one would have 20,075 days remaining. If one is, let's say, 40 years old, one has already lived 14,600 days and one has only 12,775 days left. Or if somebody is 70 years old, then the days lived amount to 25,550 days and only 1,825 days are left. I already mentioned that scientists have proved, at least on the material level, that there is no indivisible material unit and for their discovery they were dependent on very uh, sophisticated and costly instruments and machines. And recently I found this interesting article in The Inquiring Mind, a Dhamma magazine. And it was written by Ves Niskar and we have met him a few weeks ago when I was talking about faith and the refugees mentioning the story of Ajahn Sujito accompanied by a layman it was him and so what he has written is I read in some Buddhist literature that the Buddha experienced things changing millions of times in the blink of an eye meanwhile inside the subatomic world we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything 
where the quarks are doing a dance inside of an electron, events are occurring in increments far shorter than the blink of an eye, as I said, considered to be one-tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named autoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Got it? <laughs> Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down there, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second before you can even blink Zepto, it's gone I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that's all a joke so when they started to measure things changing even faster in trillions of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. Atto, septo, yocto. <laughs> Hi, I'm gone. <laughs> so the Buddha saw this incredibly fast changing nature of phenomena only with his very clear, sharp and penetrating mind. And so the Buddha's understanding or discovery led him to freedom, to liberation. Unfortunately, we cannot say this from our modern scientists. The modern scientists' discoveries are mere intellectual ones and they do not have the power for inner transformation but the Buddha's discovery was personal, direct and intuitive and so that understanding led to a radical change of his understanding and this understanding freed him from all kinds of suffering so the Buddha's understanding of the impermanent and fleeting nature of phenomena was not limited to material phenomena but included other mental phenomena as well. The Buddha saw very clearly that the nature of the mental phenomena was not different from the nature of the physical uh, phenomena that they were subject to the same natural laws the only difference is that mental phenomena arise and disappear or change at a much faster speed. So when we come to see this constant change of phenomena and when we come to see it also on the mental level, so then we see that 
one moment of consciousness arises and very quickly disappears again or we also can say it, one moment of consciousness is born to immediately pass away or to immediately die and so if we look at our life in this way then our life is indeed very very short then our life lasts as long as one moment of consciousness and so we are actually constantly born and die all the time it's a moment to moment life that we have and if we understand uh, this mechanism of arising and disappearance of to be born and to die then we see this process of birth and death in a different life and so then death like commonly uh, understood death is not so lo is no longer uh, a mystery and it doesn't need to be frightening any longer so many people are reluctant to think about death they are not aware of the fleeting nature of their lives and so instead of doing meaningful uh, things in their life they push away uh, this topic of death and they go through a life they go through life in a rather careless way so if they would really understand the fleeting nature of life and the uncertainty of life the certainty of death then they would go through life uh, getting less lost in the, in the trivialities of life and they would do uh, much more things that are meaningful and useful In, in this regard there is a nice uh, story from the com commentarial literature in India and it's from the time of Emperor Asoka who lived and uh, reigned in the 3rd century uh, before the common area many of you may have heard of Emperor Asoka apparently he was very cruel and very ruthless and so because of his ruthlessness he conquered huge areas until finally he was the emperor over what is uh, almost an Indian subcontinent so a huge empire but then apparently uh, one day after a battle being left on, on the battlefield seeing all these slain soldiers a monk walked across this battlefield and that was a turning point in his life and it said that uh, he embraced Buddhism 
and really took to heart the Buddha's teaching of non-violence, of kindness, of care uh, for the people. And so he actually became a really righteous uh, ruler and his social welfare program was quite remarkable and astonishing considering um, the time when he lived. For example, he had rest houses built along the roads so that travelers would have a place to stay the night. Or apparently he also established hospitals for animals even. And although he had embraced Buddhism, he did not impose this belief or religion on everybody in his empire, but there was a freedom of religion. And the many edicts that he released were engraved on stone slabs or pillars. And some of these pillars are still existing today. One can see them. So in this story, King or Emperor Asoka's younger brother was jealous of his elder brother. And his younger brother uh, would wanted very much to become powerful uh, as his brother. And he imagined how it would be if he would be the emperor of this vast empire instead of his elder brother. And so these thoughts, these fantasies grow stronger, more powerful. And sometimes when he walked past the throne room, he peered inside and looking at the throne and imagining he himself sitting on uh, up there. Later on, when his desire to get power became uh, stronger, he even sneaked into the throne room, making sure that nobody was around, uh, went up to the throne, sat on the throne, and just had all these fantasies of how he would rule this country. And apparently he even uh, engineered some coup to overthrow his brother. But in palaces, walls have ears and curtains have eyes, and so his plans were soon discovered. And Emperor Ahsoka was told, and so he had his brother arrested and called him for an audience. And he told his younger brother, all your plans have been discovered and you are to be executed in seven days. And his brother's face became very white and his knees started shaking and so he begged for mercy. And his brother, Emperor Ahsoka said, well, because you are my brother and because I'm a kind and compassionate emperor, I let you have your wishes, your wish fulfilled. So for the last seven days of your life, you can be the emperor. So I leave the throne to you. And anyway, 
it comes at a good time because I have thinking of going into retreat so I will um, withdraw myself from the palace go and meditate for seven days and so you can be the emperor it's all yours but there's just one limit you cannot leave the palace you must stay inside and there will be soldiers guarding uh, the gates but everything else the beautiful girls the dancers the nice food everything is yours so please enjoy and have fun and then uh, after seven days uh, Emperor Asoka came out of the retreat and again he called his brother and so he asked him well how did it go was it good was it as good as you thought did you enjoy it and his brother said mm, no no not really and Emperor Asoka asked well what was wrong weren't the dancing girl beautiful wasn't the food exquisite wasn't the wine sparkling wasn't the power intoxicating and the brother said no no so tell me what went wrong and so the younger brother said you know every time uh, when I wanted to enjoy some of these pleasures I would look up and then at the door or at the window I would see one of these stern soldiers with their swords and this would remind me that I had only five days left or four days or three days or two days until my head would be chopped off and so then Emperor Asoka said well my dear brother you have learned your lesson and the execution is called off you are reprieved so in this story it is obvious that the awareness of death thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate